Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. The new movie about Robert Oppenheimer paints a dramatic profile of the team that created the first atomic bomb. Among details left out of the film is how the initial research and subsequent tests paid little regard to their effects on the people living on nearby tribal lands, and the race to mine the materials to fuel the nation's new source of power continues to affect the health of Native Americans all over the West. We'll talk about what Oppenheimer's breakthrough meant for the generations of residents who came after. National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Oklahoma House voted Monday to override Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt's veto of a bill that extends tribal state compacts involving tobacco revenue sharing. The Associated Press reports the vote took place during a special session and met two-thirds vote needed to override. In a statement, Cherokee Nation Principal Chief Chuck Hoskin Jr. said the vote was for cooperation and collaboration over conflict. Hoskin says tribal compacts inject millions of dollars into Oklahoma's economy and local businesses. After after the Senate's vote last week to override the governor's veto, Stitt called the move illegitimate, and in a statement, Stitt said he was trying to protect eastern Oklahoma from turning into a reservation and was working to ensure the compacts were best for all Oklahomans. Stitt announced Monday he's filing a lawsuit. Tribal leaders are praising the legislature and say they're ready to move forward and continue working with the state. In hopes of having a stronger voice in Washington, D.C., a group of 12 regional Alaska Native corporations have created a new position. They've hired T.J. Presley as their first government affairs director. He says the new job reflects a growing need to educate federal policymakers about Native corporations, which were created by the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971. Presley works for the ANCSA Regional Association, formed to give Native corporations more political clout, as well as promote their efforts to develop natural resources and win contracts from the federal government. You're getting five minutes, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. There's a very brief window to make our case, and anything I can do to help make our case quicker and stronger is, is pretty much the mandate for the job. Presley says Native corporations are among Alaska's biggest companies and have an array of business interests in Washington that affect more than just their shareholders. Alaska Native companies employ not just Alaska Native people, but they employ lots and lots of non-Native Alaskans, too. So they also underpin the very fabric of Alaska's economy, too. Alaska has 12 regional corporations and more than 200 village corporations that were created to settle Native land claims in Alaska. Indigenous advocates are among the first cohort of 100 change makers for the Obama Foundation's Leaders USA program. The inaugural group was announced Tuesday. Tasha Friday and Christina Haswood are some of the indigenous leaders from South Dakota and Kansas. Friday is the national director of tribal programs for the mentorship organization Friends of the Children. She's an enrolled member of the Wichita and affiliated tribes and is Kiowa, Caddo, and Lakota. Christina Haswood is a state lawmaker in Kansas 
Texas. She's a ranking member on the State Tribal Relations Committee and is known for her advocacy on Native issues. Haswood is Navajo. In a statement, former President Obama said he's inspired by the group of young leaders working on the most pressing issues facing our world. According to the foundation, the cohort was chosen from applicants of leaders who are driving change across geographies, sectors, and issues, and who are ready to expand their impact. The leaders were picked from across the country, including five tribal nations. The Taku River Clinkett First Nation announced Tuesday it's reclaimed the names of 13 places in its traditional territory in British Columbia. The names are in the Clinkett language and are elements found in stories. The First Nation says reclaiming place names helps the communities establish a harmonious connection with the land, allows for a deeper understanding, and encourages the practice of referring to them by their original name. The places include mountains, creeks, islands, rivers, and a hot spring. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, supporting Native-led initiatives protecting plateau lands, waters, and cultures by building networks, community, and organizational capacity. Grant proposals accepted through September 2nd at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. The popular film Oppenheimer is bringing renewed interest to nuclear science and its role in World War II. But in its more than three-hour running time, it makes no mention of local Native perspectives on the process to develop and test the atomic bomb in New Mexico. Critics of the storyline say those neglected perspectives include how the Los Alamos National Laboratories were built on land sacred to the Pueblos, how Apache lands were used to test the first atomic bomb, and how Native residents have endured decades of contamination from uranium mining to fuel the new energy source. Tribes further west also highlight the effects of atomic weapons on health and what its impact on the Nevada desert. In this hour, we're giving you that perspective and exploring the legacy of atomic weapons creation and testing in our Native communities. You can join this conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. Tell us what you know about the impacts of nuclear science where you live. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Let's introduce our first three guests now. On the line in Albuquerque, New Mexico is Leona Morgan. She's an anti-nuclear activist and she's Dene. Leona, welcome back to NAC. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm actually calling in from Crown Point, New Mexico today in Eastern Navajo Nation. Thank you for that clarification, Leona. In Santa Clara, Pueblo, New Mexico, we're joined by Marianne Naranjo. She's the founder and director of Honor Our 
Pueblo existence or hope. She's Santa Clara Pueblo. Marianne, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Also in Albuquerque is Marissa Naranjo. She's the environmental justice organizer for Hope. She's also Santa Clara Pueblo. Hi, Marissa. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Cinco Tamo to you as well, sister. And uh, let's go ahead and get this conversation started now. And Leona, I'd like to begin with you. This movie Oppenheimer, it is breaking box office records, this dramatic portrayal of the development and design of the atomic bomb. You've seen the film. Does it tell the whole story? Uh, well, I, I just need to step back a little for a minute. Um, for my dinner relatives, yeah, I think uh, Oppenheimer is the perfect example of Hollywood and the United States and basically just the mainstream idea of, of history as it's taught in this country perpetuating itself. So we need to, as indigenous people, we all know that history books don't tell our story and that all of our hundreds of nations, thousands of nations across Turtle Island and North and South America, we all have our own narrative and Oppenheimer does an excellent job at erasing not only the nuclear aspects, um, we're talking about the uranium mining, the health impacts, environment, the waste, but it also erases the human impact, the impacts from colonization. So we're what we're dealing with as indigenous peoples, the theft of our land and the use of our resources for U.S. imperialism, that's something I think we're all going to talk about today. But we also did, we didn't see anything in, in the movie about the connection to nuclear energy or, you know, where these things were taken out and what, what the people were left with on those lands. And, and today I'm here in a, in, a, in a small community that has successfully fought and stopped a new uranium mine um, about 45 minutes away from here. They want to do in-situ leach uranium mining and then process that uranium here in Crown Point, New Mexico, using very, very precious water resources. And mm -hmm. this is all happening because of geopolitics internationally and, and what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. Um, but the whole, the whole nuclear picture has been designed by the United States government. You can see in the movie the compartment, the, how they compartmentalize everything and separate everything, and they don't tell everybody what's happening and how it's all connected. That's a very effective way of keeping the public voters okay taxpayers in the dark that continues right. today with both weapons and energy well, well leona one of the reasons that we're so excited to have you on this show today is that you are someone who can help our listeners fill in those gaps that this movie doesn't properly address so take us back to 1945 new mexico what was it like there in terms of just the political and social climate for native people when it came to consultation, about utilizing tribal lands, and some of these other issues that just aren't addressed in the film. Okay, I'm, I'm going to paint you two stories. Okay. I'm going to do as, a, 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 as quick a job as I can to explain. I'm only, I'm, I'm talking about Navajo Nation as a Dine person. I am speaking about the experience of my family, my relatives, and people out here. But indigenous people are impacted by uranium mining, maybe 75% of you know, all mining 
we're estimating is about 75% on indigenous lands worldwide. So this one story is just one nation, whereas we got this happening in Australia, Mongolia, Canada. So back in the 40s, when our lands were taken, again, going back to colonization, the Navajo Nation government was created to sign leases for oil and gas, not you know for the sovereignty and self-determination of our people. So back then, the same idea with uranium mining, you know, our tribe probably signed a bunch of stuff. They didn't understand what it was back then in the name of capitalism and, you know, whatever the United States sold to our, our leaders to say they had to do this. And same thing with our code talkers. We sacrificed more than we needed, meaning our land and our water. So indigenous peoples out here, some of the stories I hear is in Church Rock, the Redwater Pond Road community, they were children you know, playing in the yard, in the dirt, in their community, when they saw the big trucks coming in. They lived there before the uranium mining started. They remember the land, they remember everything. And then all of a sudden, there's these big trucks, and people thought it's good for jobs, they could get some money. They were never given any warnings about health impacts or, you know, protective equipment. They were not educated on the lasting impacts. And today, many of those people have developed cancers, or died, you know, so families are really trying to scrap together whatever they can to, to pay for, you know, health bills and things like that and, and for their lost loved ones. And a lot of it, um, they use this thing called the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, which is a pot of money um, put together by the federal government, but it, it doesn't cover everybody. So RECA actually was supposed to sunset last year, but right now there's a bill in Congress um, that folks should know about because RECA is the money that we need for people that lived downwind from tests or uranium miners before 71. Right now, that law is being expanded because it never included the people from the Trinity test, which was in New Mexico. So they consider themselves the forgotten New Mexico, the first survivors of the nuclear atomic um, weapon. They call themselves the, the forgotten victims of the first atomic blast. So Tina Cordova and the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, they're doing a great job, along with others, Navajo Nation and other organizations, pushing for this law to pass in Congress. So this is All something right. folks should look up. Um, but, yeah, so no protective equipment, no warning about anything. Now, the movie does not mention where the uranium came from for that first bomb. It came from Shinkolobwe Uranium Mine in the former, in the former Belgian Congo. Today, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, or DRC, is a land that is being plundered for so many types of minerals um, in the name of transition. So, like, lithium is something we're dealing with here in Nevada, but they're dealing with cobalt mining and all these other types of mining on top of, you know, renewed interest in uranium mining from Shinkolobwe. That uranium was so powerful, about 65 percent uranium, when today— you know, companies like Energy Fuels is trying to mine less than 1% uranium at the Grand Canyon. So that's another fight that we're dealing with is pinyon, plant, you know, uranium mining in the United States. But going back to Shinkolobwe uranium mine, this is a mine in Africa that's away from the public eyes. So, so imagine what type of things were happening to those people mining with their hands, no shoes, no equipment. Today, the same thing is happening. But we... We don't see any of this in the movie. And so the human rights aspects, 
the indigenous rights, and then the long-lived consequences to the environment. So today right. in, in the U.S., we have 15,000 abandoned uranium mines and a push for new mining. So that's just the mining. We didn't talk about the processing or, you know, the testing, um, a thousand tests on Western Shoshone. Ian, we'll talk about that later. Well, and then well, the actually, I, I would like to, to talk a little bit about that testing, Leona, because all of this research, uh, you know, back in the 1940s, it culminated with this this historic test at the Trinity site in southern New Mexico. It's often described as an army bombing range. And, and you mentioned it earlier because it didn't, uh, those people that were impacted, they weren't covered by RECA. So can you tell us a little bit before we go into break here in about another minute and a half, I mean, where exactly is this site in New Mexico? And what do you know about that historic day when they did that test? Right. Um, well, New Mexico is very unique that we have this site called Trinity Site pretty much in the center of our state. We have, you know, the world's only deep geological waste repository called the Waste Isolation Pilot Plant. We have the only enrichment facility in North America that is used for both weapons and, and energy. Well, that one in particular, we don't know what, how much they use for what. But New Mexico has all these sites, including the world's largest uranium uh, spill, which was up here on Navajo. At the Trinity site location, um, the people there, uh, not a mix of people, um, some may call themselves Hispanic or Chicano, and of course there's the Mescalero and Apaches, Comanches, everyone. But the uh, fallout went kind of northeast, so pretty much everyone um, in New Mexico, in the northeastern part of New Mexico. Anyways, the, the, what, what Tina says, Tina Cordova, she talks a lot about people being dependent on their homegrown food sources, um, their milk from the cows, and how people living out there when the bomb went off. Uh, she talks about the bomb being detonated from a platform uh, 100 feet high where the, um, it, it went you know, further out into the communities and mm -hmm. was, was, was really widespread. And folks, you know, they had ashes raining down on them and, and things like that. And they didn't know what it was. They okay. weren't given any time. Leona, I'm sorry. We have to take our first break here. We'll be right back. Uh, anyone with a question, if you've seen the movie Oppenheimer, tell us what you thought. 1-800-996-2848. There's still time to enjoy a few more vacation days before most school districts start back up for the fall. At the same time, students, teachers, and parents are checking tasks off their to-do list to make sure they're ready for the first day back. We'll get some back-to-school perspectives on the next Native America Calling. Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The new movie Oppenheimer dramatizes the Manhattan Project and the Trinity Test in New Mexico at the end of World War II. Today we're talking about the often overlooked perspective of Native American residents at the time and in the time since. How was your community affected by nuclear testing? Give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. 
That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I'm going to move on to our next guest, Marianne Naranjo. Marianne Naranjo, who is in Santa Clara, Pueblo. And Marianne, the weapons building that took place and was featured in this film, Oppenheimer, it was at the Los Alamos National Laboratory, which is in close proximity to your Santa Clara Pueblo homelands. What's the significance of that area to Santa Clara and your neighboring northern Pueblo communities? Well, Biakindi, um Kuntawaha on Ataki. Um this area is our west wall to our, our, our church. It's a very sacred place to all villages. And uh, it was very much um, disrupted, you know, our uh, cave um, people were there. Uh, so there's many burial sites uh, from way back in our, our history. And um, a place that is very, very dear to our, our uh, existence as far as um, <clears throat> the spring water that comes down that uh, has taken care of us for since millennium on our time here as a uh, Tewa people being planted here um, and being very fortunate that we're still in the area in where Creator planted us. And Marianne, what do you know about that time period? Because there, there wasn't a whole lot in terms of uh, industrialization or any kind of urbanization there in Los Alamos during that time. And then all of a sudden, these scientists kind of move in secretly and start building stuff. I mean, what was it like there at Santa Clara Pueblo and San Alfonso and, and some of those other communities? I mean, what did, did they know what was going on? It was very secretive and stories that I was very fortunate to hear from uh, elders, potters, mostly potters that aren't um, living anymore. Uh, they didn't know what really was going on until uh, pottery became part of that scenario. Um, it was beautiful. They would find it in the digs. Uh, Oppenheimer had hired um, a woman from San Alfonso to be the maid and uh, he purchased pottery and uh, it became um, uh, a way of uh, monetary value uh, to our people. There was no money, you know, there was, uh, we fed ourselves, we were sovereign, food sovereignty in, uh, in that manner and then uh, money came at that time so it sounds so, like there yeah. was somewhat of a silver lining there even though this test you know these this technology that was being created it, it did provide some economic prosperity to to pueblo people at that time then and uh that was the part you know of um i guess sensitizing our people from the boarding schools the next step, you know, was becoming part of uh, this United States government, whatever form it happened was uh, through the, the army, unfortunately. And uh, it just um, shows and these elders had said how um, uh, they have no manners, that these people just had no manners, uh, according to our 
our beliefs of mannerisms. You know, they didn't uh, ask permission to even come here. Uh, they had to write a paper to allow themselves to be here, the War's Powers Act. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was very secretive. And, uh, yeah. But it, you know, like opened up that realm of uh, monetary and uh, curiosity. A lot of them were the women um, would be maids up there for many of the scientists, not just um, Oppenheimer, but their curiosity of uh, why these people were here and their um, manner to not ask questions. And Marianne, how about the impact on the land there? Did the laboratories change the landscape and alter the natural resources there in northern New Mexico? Oh my gosh. when I started um, my work um, doing the environmental work in 1998, uh, I had always wondered um, what was happening up there at the time of uh, the making of bombs. And uh, so I got to, to read a lot of the environmental impact statements and actually got to go up on site to see where uh, some of the contamination was, where they uh, just threw it over the side of the cliffs, you know, and coming down um, these ditches and ending up in the Rio Grande. Mm. Now, there was that big fire up in Los Alamos uh, a few years ago. Um, How did that, I mean, in terms of how that fire, how those... uh, how the authorities and how those fire crews address that. Did, did that concern you with regard to how much attention they focused on, on Lanel and Los Alamos as opposed to some of their surrounding communities? It was heartbreaking. It was so appalling to see on the television the fire, hit fire guy saying, oh, we forced this fire to go north and we forced this fire to go south to save the lab. And we lost our uh, watershed because of that. And south, down south, you know, by Cochiti and those places, I mean, the downstream ash that uh, flowed down. And we're still not recovered from that. Uh, it was... Um, a hard situation, you know, for our our government, our leaders, you know, to have to be okay with that because of the knowledge of what is up there, what is stored up there, and the work that is done up there. Uh, if that fire would have uh, gotten more onto laboratory property, uh, we might not even have a home. Marianne, do you and other folks there at Santa Clara and, and those nearby Pueblos, how, how safe do you feel just living in that close of proximity to to all of this technology and everything else we're talking about? Well, that was a real big issue for me for a long, long time. And uh, it was so vital and important to uh, open that door to get information to our people so that we would have an understanding of what really is at stake here with the elements that uh, and the work that is being done there. And um, 
uh, it was, uh, you know, these big technical words and all, and it was uh, years of um, educating um, mostly elders and young people in order to be able to address these issues. Mm -hmm. But it happened. Right. That education has happened. And I'm hoping and praying that uh, we're at a point where historical work can now come out of this uh, by being on the same page of understanding where we are with this nuclear age right here in our yard, our sacred place. Marianne, uh, this is a good point now uh, to pivot to to your niece, who's also on the show, Marissa. You mentioned education in, in the younger generation, and Marissa, you are part of this next generation of Santa Clara people who are picking up the fight against nuclear activity in New Mexico. What's the message that you and your peers want to convey? again. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Again, my name is Marissa Naranja from Santa Clara Pueblo. Um, and I just wanted to also mention I got involved with this work um, through Marion, but also just by the fact of living, you know, my family and my community living near the lab. Um, our story is one that's not very uncommon for our, uh, our northern New Mexico and Pueblo people. I grew up hearing the stories of my great-grandpa and other family members who worked in the labs and throughout my life. You know, I've served as a caregiver for four women in my family, my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my great-auntie, and now my mom, you know, all of whom who grew up in Santa Clara helping farming, making pottery, other activities, you know, where they were really in close relationship with the land. And unfortunately, later on in their lives, they were all diagnosed with four different types of cancer. So, um, you know, if you talk to anyone in our northern pueblos, they are very likely to have similar stories of family members, especially those in elder generations with similar health challenges, especially those related to um, different types of cancers. So I think the main message, you know, is really to just um, be aware, you know, talking to family members, talking to elders, talking to folks who live in that area and seeing that the impacts of LANO are not just historic, that they're ongoing, that they're legacy impacts and that it's very needed, um, you know, support at all levels from the community, local, state, federal government to help help address all of these health impacts that are continually ongoing and the communities who um, continue to fight every day for peace of mind and health of their bodies, our minds and our spirits. And Marissa, here in 2023, how would you describe the relationship between LANL and these other activities up there in Los Alamos and Santa Clara Pueblo? Um, You know, I think that there is a lot of historic injustice that needs to be addressed still. I think that our Pueblos are doing an amazing job in trying to, um, you know, advocate consistently with the state and federal governments in in um, advancing tribal consultation, advancing that um, that solemn Indian trust responsibility that's supposed to exist, um, you know, at all levels of government specifically, in this case with the Department of Energy, with the Department of Energy National Nuclear Security Administration between our Pueblos. And our Pueblos have long legacies and decades of fighting for Um, You know, that relationship building, that acknowledgement, that um, consultation, and ultimately, hopefully, you know, that consent that the federal government should be respecting of our Pueblos 
Um, there are four Accord Pueblos right now that are working in very close relationship with Lionel to address the um, health impacts, the um, contamination and remediation and assessments that are needing to continually happen. But I think there's definitely a long way to go. Thanks, Marissa. I, I want to introduce a, a third uh, person from Santa Clara Pueblo into this discussion. We have her on the line right now, Kay- Kaylee Warren, and she is the Environmental Justice Program Coordinator for a nonprofit uh, by the name of Tewa Women United. Kaylee, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Kayla, can you talk a little bit more about what have been the impacts on on the land there in and around Los Alamos? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I appreciate, you know, especially Leona bringing in the fact that this is a major part that, of the story that the movie misses. Um, what's not acknowledged um, in popular media is the fact that every component of the atomic bomb had to be tested on site at the Manhattan Project location, which means that the impacts from every component that ended up making the atomic bomb affected local communities, which includes um, my community of Santa Clara Pueblo, um, local Hispano communities, and also um, four additional Pueblos. Um, So what that entails is, you know, the infusion of legacy waste into our ancestral landscape. Um, One important experiment that I think needs to be aware of and that I wish was highlighted in the movie um, are radioactive lanthanum experiments, which tested um, a compression portion for the atomic bomb that enabled the explosion of the interior plutonium core that causes, you know, the dramatic um, explosive event of an atomic bomb. Though that component specifically was tested more than 200 times uh, in our ancestral canyons. And what that means is that more than 200 times a radioactive plume was sent over the Española Basin and all of our pueblos. Um, So what we're looking at, and this is just from the Manhattan Project, I think it's important to acknowledge that legacy impacts have been layered on since the 40s with beginning the Manhattan Project and now Los Alamos National Lab. But from the Manhattan Project alone, we have hundreds of incidences of uh, radioactive uh, emissions into the environment. And we're talking about elements that have a half-life of several thousand years in many cases. Um, And what that means is uh, we, we evaluate the decomposition process to a point of safety for some of these radioactive elements over a half period of thousands of years because it's so incomparable to our human lifetimes how long these elements are present and harmful in the environment. Mm. Uh, Kaylee, do you have um, any accounts uh, of Pueblo people in that area witnessing some of these tests back in the 1940s? Mm-hmm. So. The problem with that is that none of our public people were informed of these tests. Um, there was never any attempt made to provide a warning to our pueblos that anything like this would happen, which is just, you know, a textbook example of the negligence and carelessness of the scientists during the Manhattan Project, which I think is important to mention because it gets passed off so often as, 
you know, they didn't know um, this was, you know, a project that was the first of its kind. How could they know the impacts? It's unacceptable that our communities were exposed so recklessly. Um, and so because of that, the oral histories around these events um, are not well recorded and they're not even well documented by, you know, the agencies themselves. Um, these tests happened from the 40s until the early 60s, uh, and less than half of them are actually documented. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And even beyond Northern Pueblos, because I've, I've talked to people way out at Laguna Pueblo that saw some of those plumes and, and witnessed just from the mesas there, they could see some of that stuff. So it was, I mean, it, it really had a, a wide impact. And I, I do want to make a note, listeners, that our producers did reach out to Los Alamos National Laboratories to get their perspectives on these issues. They were not able to provide someone to appear on our show today. I also want to uh, share this little bit of information. This Sunday, August 6th, will be the anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima. Nagasaki was three days later on August 9th. Both events occurred in 1945. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we will have our next guest, Ian Zabarti, who will be joining us from Fish Lake Valley, Nevada, and talking more about nuclear science and its impact on Native communities. Stay with us, folks. Program support by the Colorado Plateau Foundation, a Native-led foundation supporting Native-led initiatives protecting the lands, waters, and cultures of the Plateau for generations to come. The Colorado Plateau Foundation helps to build networks, community, and organizational capacity. The Colorado Plateau Foundation is accepting grant proposals through September 2nd. Eligibility information is available at coloradoplateaufoundation.org. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about Native experiences and perspectives on atomic weapons testing and creation in the Southwest. Still time to join this conversation. So give us a call, 1-800-996-2848. Tell us what you know or if you have any questions or comments. Our producers are standing by to take your call. That's 1-800-996-2848. Allow me to now introduce our next guest who is joining us from Fish Lake Valley, Nevada, Ian Zabarti. He is the principal man of the Western Band of Shoshone Indians and Secretary of the Native Community Action Council. Ian, hello, and welcome to Native America Calling. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, I watched you on the documentary. You were a very, very compelling voice, and I think it's important to note that the two atomic bombs that we talked about before break were dropped on Japan a month after the Trinity test, but that wasn't the end of nuclear weapons testing. Please continue today's dialogue from a Shoshone perspective. Yeah, that was just the beginning. Uh, the next series of tests took place in the Marshall Islands upon the Marshallese, the indigenous people that live there. And then it was moved to a uh, Nevada test site, uh, now the Na Nevada National Security Site in 1951. And between 1951 and 1992, the United States detonated 928 nuclear weapons of mass destruction in our country, and 100 were atmospheric, and the rest were underground. But even those vent 
they don't consider them uh, they consider them a controlled release, but these would vent anyway. And in the case of, for example, Mighty Oak in 1986, three weeks before Chernobyl, that damaged the uh, underground facilities, killed some workers, and the uh, radiation went around the world. And we only knew about it because of Chernobyl and the people who were investigating the fallout were calibrating their instruments off the coast of Washington state and found radiation uh, that was not from Chernobyl. They were able to uh, track the isotope signature of the fallout all the way back to that specific test. And we don't know how many times that happened, but that was an underground test which released a 15-mile-high uh, cloud of radiation that went around the world. And the Department of Energy tried to cover it up and suggest it was Chernobyl. So that's who we're dealing with on the other side there. They came into our country in secret and uh, uh, detonated these weapons of mass destruction, indiscriminate weapons of mass destruction. And some of the estimates are that as many as 6 million Americans were poisoned by radioactive fallout. And we need to really look at these things. In other parts of the world, Chernobyl or uh, Kazakhstan or uh, uh, Marshall Islands, there are monitoring registries and surveillance. We don't have that here. Uh, that is not happening, and it needs to. So that's kind of where we uh, took up the, uh, uh, the issue, uh, looking at our plants, our animals, and those things that are important to us, our water. So... We began looking at those, and we didn't have any warning about the tests. We didn't have any understanding except our uh, hard experience of uh, our people just dying. And uh, we continued to investigate the adverse health consequences known to be plausible from exposure to radiation, looking at our, um, uh, like I said, our plants, our animals, our water, we brought researchers from the Childhood Cancer Research Institute in about 1992 to look at those things. We took them hunting, fishing, gathering, showed them what we did, and they had some very good observations. We took them to sweats. We took them to our, 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 our prayers, our, our events, and they began to understand that we spent a lot more time uh, closer to the ground. So we looked at diet, what we ate, how much we ate, how we prepared our food, uh, mobility, where we went, what we did there, uh, hunting, fishing, gathering, medicine, prayer, ceremony, and shelter, where our houses were, what they were made of, and how long we spent time there. And for diet, we eat the whole animal. So after a test which took place uh, between 1951 and 1992, on average, Every three weeks, there was an explosion and a release of fallout. So we were uh, constantly being exposed just based on our lifestyle, eating rabbit, deer, antelope that absorbed the radiation into the thyroid, and we prepared our food with the whole animal and uh, without knowing All right. uh, had a significantly, significantly increased burden of risk. All right. Ian, thank you for all this background. And you mentioned testing uh, 1951 to 1992. So I'm going to ask you if that's when the testing stopped or has it continued. But before I do that, uh, I do want to make a note that the documentary that I referenced earlier that you appear in, it's titled Downwind. 
and it's coming out. It premieres August 18th, and it'll be in some select theaters. But Ian, and before we continue the conversation, I'm going to take a caller. We have Chanupa, who is listening up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, on Keeley. Hello there, Chanupa. Hey, Sean. Thank you for having me. Listen, people, here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation back in the late 40s, our sacred badlands was used as a test site for them to, you know, explode bombs. There's some of their sarpanol and many other bombs that didn't go off that my people put in plexiglass, and they check on them every six months so that plexiglass don't seal because that gas, it breathes, and it'll, it'll push out more uh, liquidation that can set them bombs off. But one of the things that my people are affected by it because of that leakage of these gas and White America has never cleaned it up after they disposed of them and used it for a test site to try them. The little hamlet called Redshirt Table and Number 7, those are districts, they're affected by all those uh, bombs, um, nuclear you know, waste from that you know, explosion of, of testing those bombs. So my people are still affected by it through cancer and certain other terminal you know, illnesses where it's hard for them to breathe because of the um, that gas that still, you know, those, those bombs are breathing. But America, if they ever want to do anything, they need to clean up their own backyard like we Native people have been doing. And even individuals have been doing right. that, cleaning up their own backyard. So, John, I wanted to add that to you because there are many sites that are still being, you know, tested today, but they're not telling anybody, not even All the right. tribal government, to sneak in. So. Back to you on. Thank you, Sean. I'm going to listen in. All right. Thank you for that call, Chanupa. And Ian, I'd like you to, to go ahead and respond to Chanupa because here he is in South Dakota and he's explaining similar issues. Do you meet Native people all over the United States voicing similar concerns, sharing similar experiences? Yes, all the time. Uh, awareness is key. And when people uh, become aware and start asking questions, they will find the answers they're looking for. Uh, we're dealing with a culture of secrecy, and in my opinion, you know their intent when it's done in secret. So the fallout from the 928 tests at the Nevada test site went around the world. Uh, some of the places with uh, uh, hard to say good uh, fallout data is North Dakota, the uh, uh, the North Dakota Department of Public Health has data on uh, fallout that was used by the National Cancer Institute to produce their 1997 uh, report on uh, radioactive fallout uh, upon the American people. So that was in 1997. The fallout went across the plains. It rained. The rain took the radiation down to the grass, and the grass absorbed that. The cattle ate the grass, and their milk was shipped all over the place, their ice cream all over the place. That's called the milk exposure pathway, and that can be seen in that 1997 report on uh, fallout uh, on right. American people. Yeah, so it's it's pretty bad, and you, you just have to uh, start asking questions. So it's very good that um, people are becoming aware, and I think that's the, uh, the best thing about uh, the films that are coming out. Downwind is not a simple 
story. It is uh, what happened, and it's a hard truth, and it helps us uh, become aware. Oppenheimer is about an individual, uh, like Barbie, for example. Um, <laughs> they are incomplete and simple, uh, a simple story of what happened at, at, at the Trinity site. But that is just the beginning. It went on and on. Like I said, every three weeks there was a weapons test and the fallout was going around the world. And we don't know how many times it went wrong and that radiation uh, uh, you know, was released and went other places. Other places with a lot of fallout data, Kansas, uh, Rochester, New York, where the Kodak factory was. The government warned manufacturers of film that was fogging their film. They also used to wrap their, their film in corn husks uh, from the Midwest that then exposed the film. But Kodak was warned, corporations were warned, their profit margin, but not us. In our case, we always had horses. We had the best of everything. And our horses were out on the range. The Bureau of Land Management started to attack our people in 1971. Mary and Carrie Dan are most uh, notable. Those are my uh, elders and my council members that have, have passed. And they're the ones who uh, gave me a lot of um, my traditional knowledge. Well, the Bureau of Land Management, seeing how degraded the range was, blamed Shoshone livestock, our horses and cattle, for destruction of the range that was caused by nuclear weapons testing. And they stole our horses. They stole our economy. They violated our peace as guaranteed by treaty in the Treaty of Ruby Valley of 1863. That's why today we need a safe place to live. My people don't have the treaty reservation that was guaranteed in our, to the Treaty of Ruby Valley. We have the only ratified treaty that includes Nevada and California, and okay. we need relief. We right. need relief. Ian, I want to go back to that question I posed earlier, because it's not clear to me. When did the testing in your Shoshone homelands finally end, or has it ended? No, it hasn't ended. Um, they came into our country in secret and uh, detonated these weapons. Uh, we brought tens of thousands of people, activists, protesters over uh, over many years, <clears throat> uh, decades, and uh, put pressure on the uh, United Nations General Assembly, the World Health Organization, to seek an advisory opinion from the World Court. It's called the World Court Project. Uh, on the illegality of nuclear weapons. And the World Court in 1996 found that, yes, uh, the use or threat of use of nuclear weapons violates international law. So it's important to um, uh, take, 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 take a step back and credit for our achievements. That work put pressure on the United States and other, other nations to uh, uh, place a moratorium on the testing of nuclear weapons. And that's been in place since 1994 under President Bill Clinton. And later on, that uh, World Court project, now in 2021, translated into the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So that is an important success. And right now, uh, the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is international law, and the nuclear weapon states are the outlaw, outliers because most uh, of the other nations in the world have signed the Treaty on Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. All right. So that's right. kind of where we are today. So, Ian, to you, is that the answer, no more nuclear activity, period? Because I, I, think, I think what it, worries—go uh, ahead, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think it is. Um, 
in my opinion, we can either have our uh, military militarization, and we're moving in that direction, gas pedal, no brakes, or we can have our environment. And we need to turn things around, shift the moral center of the world to actually caring about people, about caring for the land and the water and these things that are important. That's what makes us different from the scientists and engineers. They want to do pure science. They want to build things. I get that. It's exciting. But we know what we're trying to protect. It's that pure water. It's this land. It's the animals. It's the uh, 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 families. I, I mean, I'm related to okay. 10,000 people in Nevada. Uh, other Americans don't have that kind of relationship with people. They right. don't really have all those people to care about. I do. All right. Ian, really, really appreciate you coming on the show today and sharing your insights. Very, very helpful. I want to pivot back to Leona Morgan as we wind down the show. And Leona, I, I want you to answer that same question. Is it no more nuclear activity period? Because I think what worries a lot of people with these discussions is like, okay, if not in New Mexico, then where? Because you kick these problems down the road and then it becomes somebody other somebody else's problem. Some other community has to deal with it. So What's the answer? Um, well, we need to figure out how to educate our people about the true nature of nuclear colonialism. Because I'm talking about uranium mining because it is both nuclear weapons and nuclear energy that are attacking our people. And it's, it's just the perpetuation of, let's say, the doctrine of discovery, you know, this colonization. But it's a different type of Wild West. It's a different unknown power invisible radiation and this accumulates in our body and on our land and we have so many types of radioactive wastes in the world with nowhere to put it and so they're they're trying to bring it back to new mexico uh right now we're dealing with way 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 too much stuff that then we can handle and i know we we don't have much time on the show so i'm just going to give some websites that have a lot more information because sure yeah we need to stop nuclear we need to stop nuclear development where it begins and that's uranium mining and every stage along the fuel chain people at savannah river site hanford all these places we lost land we lost water and today there's st they still don't know what's in the water and people are still expecting the united states government to give them the data so we need to start doing our own testing our own monitoring and making our own laws so you can find more information um, on indigenousaction.org hallno.com and I want to make sure folks uh, come back to these websites because there's going to be updates. Um, HonorOurPuebloExistence.org, um, DineNoNukes.org. And we're going to have a petition. Table Women United want to, wants everyone to come back to their website. They're going to have a change.org petition regarding Leona, I'm sorry. We're, we're going to have to wrap it up. We are out of time. But before we do that, to our guests, Ian Zabarti, Marianne Naranjo, Marissa Naranjo, Kaylee Warren and Leona Morgan, thank you all for your thought-provoking Native perspectives on nuclear science. Join us here on Native America Calling again tomorrow as we gear up for the new school year. Students, teachers, and parents are all getting ready to buckle down to schoolwork. Tune in and you'll hear all about it. Support by AARP. If someone asks you to buy gift cards to pay off debt, it's a scam. Imposters will claim your social security number's at risk, or your utility company will stop service due to late payments, or you won the lottery and only need to pay some upfront costs. They'll say the fastest way is to buy gift cards and share the numbers on the back. Anyone who tells you to pay a debt with a gift card is a scammer. 
More information on gift card scams at aarp.org slash gift cards. Did you know that there could be a silent killer inside your home? You may know it, carbon monoxide. It's a poisonous gas that can't be seen or smelled, yet it can kill a family in a matter of minutes. You can protect yours by installing carbon monoxide alarms throughout your home. Find more on the dangers of carbon monoxide and additional safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.